following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. Again, church, it's good to see everybody this morning. Let's go and turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 5 this morning, and it says this, Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. You know, there's an old poem by this guy named William Blake called The Lamb. Perhaps you had to memorize this when you were growing up in school back in the day. It says this, Little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed by the stream and o'er the mead. Gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly bright. Gave thee such a tender voice, making, such, or making all the veils rejoice. Little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? Well, little lamb, I'll tell thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. I a child and thou a lamb. We are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. Kind of a nice little poem. Has a little bit of a nursery rhyme feel to it, right? But Blake is struck by the beauty of this little creature, the lamb, right? And he's looks at this and he says, this gives me some insight into the character of God, its creator. Indeed, Romans 1.20 tells us this, that God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That as we look around the world, at, at the world that has been created, we get some insight into who God is. And so in looking at the lamb, he's reminded how Jesus came to us in gentleness as a child and ultimately became a sacrificial lamb on our behalf. But as Blake is looking around at the world, he sees that there are other creatures. In fact, he wrote a companion poem to this one called The Tiger. And he noticed that in contrast to the lamb, Blake saw in the tiger raw strength and ferocity and intimidation leading him to ask this. He says, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer? What the chain? In what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil? What dread grasp? Dare its deadly terrors clasp, and when the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry. Blake was this incredible artist. Now, he had some pretty whack theology at times, so I wouldn't recommend reading him in that capacity. But here, as a poet, he raises an astute observation for us to ponder. What does it reveal about the nature and the character of God that from his creative mind came both the tiger and the lamb, the mighty and terrifying beast and the gentle and lowly creature? How can it be that God reflects both of these things 
at the very same time. Or as we sang this morning, how is Christ both the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah? Well, it's because the Bible reveals to us that God is both all-powerful and he is all-good. And that is something that we often take for granted in the church, but it's not something that all cultures have assumed. I mean, just look at the Greek and the Roman gods. They had great power, but they were just as messed up as we are, right? They were sleeping around with each other. They were getting drunk. They were losing their temper over trivial things. They were swayed by manipulation and turbulent emotions. They were powerful, but they were not very good, you know, I had the privilege to travel to India a few times, and one time I was in Calcutta. I think we have some pictures here. I got to worship in the church planted by the missionary William Carey, who's the father of the modern missions movement. I also got to go and visit a hospital founded by Mother Teresa, right? It was an incredible experience, but right next to this hospital founded by Mother Teresa, there was a Hindu temple where the goddess Kali was worshipped. Now, if you're not up on all the Hindu gods out there, just think about Indiana Jones for a second, okay? Remember the second movie, Temple of Doom, right? Where they're inside this place and they rip out like a beating heart and all that stuff, right? Guess who they're worshipping there? They're worshipping the goddess Kali. That's Kali, okay? Kali is the goddess in Hinduism of death. And destruction and revenge so people go there and they make offerings to her and they worship her and they pray to her when they're ticked off at somebody and they want her to come and blow them up right see many cultures they think of God or the gods as having great power but listen having a being with great power isn't necessarily a good thing like, I don't know about y'all, but I'm really glad Kali is not the God of the universe. Amen? All right. In order for it to be a good thing to have a being with such great power, they have to be a good God. Aren't you thankful, friends, that our God, the true and the living God, isn't just all-powerful? He's all-good. And more than being good, he is shalom. Remember how we talked about in the Garden of Eden before the fall, it was in a state of shalom. Everything existed in harmony and peace with one another. Well, that's how God is in his very nature. He is whole. He is complete. He is lacking nothing. God is perfection. He's undivided in his spirit. He's not tossed back and forth by various emotions or conflicting desires and passing whims. There's not even a a hint of evil within him. He has no ulterior motives. He has no changing moods. He doesn't even change his mind. God is perfect. He's perfect in all his attributes. He's perfect in all his plans. He is all powerful. He is all good. He is also all knowing. He is all wise. He is fully just and holy, even as he is fully merciful and loving. Indeed, unlike the pagan gods of old who lost their temper at the drop of a hat, the Bible says that our God is, listen, merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
even when God is angry, we see that he is righteous in his anger, much like we would be if we saw someone harming an innocent child. He has a righteous anger. Why? Because he is a just God, and yet he is patient with us, enduring our sin, leading us to repentance. Indeed, while we, he must ultimately deal with our sin by exacting judgment on our sin, either by bringing death to us, the wage of sin is death, or bringing death to his son, Jesus, who bore our penalty on our behalf, right? Either way, he has to deal with sin, and yet the Bible says his desire is that none should perish but that all should reach repentance. His desire is that all would believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. See, God is able to do anything, but in his perfection, God is perfectly measured in his power. Unlike the pagan gods, you might say that he is power under control. And just as he is power under control, he is calling us to be the same. That's the definition of meekness. See, we often think of meekness as being weakness. Maybe it's because those two words rhyme. I don't know. But to be meek does not mean to be puny or shy or timid. To be meek is to have your strength under control, to exercise restraint even when you are being attacked. It's knowing that you may have the power to retaliate, but choosing instead to hold yourself back and not respond in kind. Now again, that just cuts against the grain of what most people think flourishing looks like. They think in order to flourish, man, you have to fight. Man, you, you come after me, bro, I'm going to come after you, okay? You talk trash about me, there's about to be cleanup on aisle three, all right? You step into my place, I'm going to get all up in your face, right? That's the way of the world. You've got to step up and take what's yours. Don't take no for an answer. Fight for your rights. If someone punches you, you punch back and twice as hard because it's only the fittest who survive. It's the strong who prosper. So if you want the land, buddy, you better take up your arms and conquer. And Jesus says, no. That is not the way of flourishing. It is those who hold themselves back who will flourish. The first will be last. The last will be first. Jesus says it is those who don't take matters into their own hands who will ultimately prosper. Indeed, in just a few verses, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Like, that just sounds crazy, y'all. Like, that sounds like the path to losing and to dying. And Jesus says, that's the way to life everlasting. How? How can this be? How can the way of flourishing rest not in vying for power and rallying to my defenses, but rather in choosing a life of humility and surrender? Why would we choose meekness in a world that is red in tooth and claw, as Tennyson would put it? Well, as crazy as it may sound, world domination 
Kingdom advancement, Jesus says, will not come through taking up weapons of war. It will come in laying them down. Indeed, when Jesus' disciple Peter takes up a blade to fight for Jesus, Jesus tells him what? Put your sword back in its place. See, Jesus wasn't interested in being a political Messiah, which is what the Jews were expecting. They wanted someone to rise up and lead an insurrection against the Roman government and fight for them and build a worldly empire for them. And Jesus says, no. When he stands before Pilate, what does he say? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, he says, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Friends, Jesus does not need, nor does he want you to fight for him. He doesn't want you to take anything back for him. That's not the way the kingdom advances. That's the way worldliness and godlessness advances. That's the opposite of shalom. Jesus here says that it is the meek. It is the ones in this life who lose their rights, whose property is confiscated, whose reputations are obliterated, whose character is assassinated. It's the meek and not the power hungry or the warmonger, but the ones who refuse to retaliate, who refuse to get in the gutter or follow those who do. They are the ones that Jesus says will inherit the earth. And you might be thinking, that sounds insane. I mean, it certainly doesn't sound fair. Like, it seems stupid. Like, doesn't that just mean that all the bad people are just going to seize all the power and get all the good stuff, and we're just going to have to suffer? I mean, does Jesus just want the bad guys to just take over? No, not at all. Remember, we talk about this a lot right here, but context is king, right? There is certainly a time and a place to speak up in truth. And in love, there's even a place to respectfully and peacefully resist and protest. In fact, there is even a place for government, the Bible says, to maintain law and order and even to enter into just wars. Paul talks about this in Romans 13. Jesus isn't suggesting otherwise here. Instead, what Jesus is getting at here is he's telling us how His kingdom will advance and how his people will conduct themselves, which is going to look very different from how the world conducts itself. When Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth, he is pointing back to a psalm written by King David in the Old Testament. Psalm 37. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to be there the rest of this morning. In this psalm, David is wrestling with the fact that in a fallen world, it often feels like the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer. Indeed, the righteous often suffer at the hands of the wicked. But David here, like Jesus, reminds the people that the path of flourishing is not in getting even but in becoming meek. Indeed, Psalm 37.11 sounds a lot like this beatitude. Look at it. It says, But the meek 
shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Shalom. Flourishing. See, David here, he's talking to the Old Testament people of God, and he's referring to the land of Israel. But notice, when Jesus quotes this verse in the Beatitudes, he doesn't say the meek will inherit the land. He says what? The meek will inherit the earth. Why? Why? Because just as we saw that Jesus is the greater Moses, we also see that Jesus is the greater Israel. And just as God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, so too is he now delivering his people out of slavery to sin and into a new heaven and a new earth. See, God is redeeming not just the Jew, but also the Gentile. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And his kingdom is not going to just be some small patch of land in the Middle East. No, it's going to be the entire world. Every continent, every ocean, every square inch of this terrestrial ball. And Jesus says, the meek get it all. Not only do his people receive the kingdom of heaven, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But now it says we also get the earth and everything in it. So how? How does meekness lead to the way of flourishing? Well, there's four ways we see right here in the psalm. The first one is this. Our meekness shows we fear God and not man. Our meekness shows we fear God and not man. Look at verse 1. It says, fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of evildoers. Verse 7, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Now again, that seems really odd, doesn't it? Why wouldn't we fear evil people who do evil things? Like we look around at the world today and there seems to be a whole lot of crazy, right? And a whole lot of reasons to fear. And he's telling us here, don't be afraid. Why? Look at verse 2. He says, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. Verse 9, the evildoers shall be cut off. Verse 20, the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Verse 34, the wicked are cut off. Verse 36, the wicked will pass away. They will be no more. Verse 13, it says the Lord laughs at the wicked because he sees that his day is coming. Verse 38, transgressors shall be altogether destroyed the future of the wicked shall be cut off in other words both David and Jesus are reminding us don't be short-sighted here in your perspective sure it might look like for a season that the rich and the powerful are the ones prospering now but he says the day of the Lord is coming the day of judgment is coming coming and we will all stand before him on that day therefore david says in verse 8 listen he says refrain from anger and forsake wrath fret not yourselves why because it tends only to evil verse 27 he says turn away from evil and do good so so shall you dwell forever 
forever. Do you see what he's calling us to here? He's saying when you have an eternal perspective on things, you start to see that you have no reason to fear. You're free to choose the path that leads to righteousness even when you must suffer because you know that that is going to lead to eternal prosperity and eternal flourishing. Sure, the wicked might seem like they're prospering now, but that prosperity will only last for what? Like 80 years maybe? But then what? It says eternal destruction, right? So do you see why he's saying turn from evil? Don't retaliate? Because if evil ends in destruction, then why would you return evil for evil? Instead, the Bible says that you are to overcome evil with what? Good. Those who fear the Lord, listen, though they may suffer now, will experience eternal rest and shalom. So why? Why would you grasp for power in a world that is passing away? Why would you fear what mortal man can do to you? Instead, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Friends, listen. The worst anyone could ever do to you is kill your body. But Jesus will just make you a new one. Right? Like, I mean, yes, you might suffer now, but you serve the God of the resurrection. Do you believe that? Then what can man do to you? But this takes serious faith, doesn't it? This takes true strength, doesn't it? See, when Jesus calls us to meekness, he's not calling us to cowardice or to withdrawing in fear. No, in fact, we see meekness is the opposite of fear. Meekness requires courage. The easy thing to do is to fight back. The harder and the higher way is to respond not in kind, but instead to respond in kindness. See, when people retaliate or scream or shout in defense, that's actually a sign that they're living in fear. They're scared of losing something, their home, their culture, their way of life, life itself. See, the powerful of this world, they are never at peace. Why? Because deep down, they're scared to death of losing it all. But that's exactly what Jesus is calling us to. He says, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. Indeed, he says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. See, friends, meekness is not weakness. It is power under control. I no longer live under the fear of man. I choose instead to live under the fear of God. Why? Because the first time he came, he came as a lamb. But the second time he comes, he's coming as a lion. And I don't know about y'all, I want to be on the right side of the lion. You know what I'm saying? So we're meek because we fear God and not man. But second, we're meek because our hope is in the Lord and not in this world. 
Our hope is in the Lord and not in this world. Look at verse 3. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and what? He will act. Man, that's good news. See, I don't need to worry about whether somebody is treating me fairly, whether I'm getting my due, whether or not someone is acting okay with me, right? Like, I just need to make sure that I'm pursuing King Jesus. Because at the end of the day, right, if you're serving the Lord of the universe, which if you're serving Jesus, spoiler alert, you are, right, then he's got this. He doesn't need you. What does it say? It says, he will act. Verse 6, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the new day. So what? Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the, over the man who carries out evil devices. Right? He says, don't be scared of these people. Just wait patiently for the Lord. Why? Because God is going to bring justice. I just need to be still. I don't need to take matters into my own hands. He's going to set things right, if not in this life, then in the life to come. So I can rest easy, y'all. Verse 9, he says, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall what? Inherit the land. Verse 22, For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Those cursed by him shall be cut off. Verse 28, The Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. Man, is that good. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous, though, they shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. So in light of that truth, what does David call us to? Look at verse 34. He says, wait for the Lord. He says, keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. Isn't that good news? I don't need to take anything by force. It says he's going to give it to me. And more than that, it says you will look on when the wicked are cut off. Like not only is he going to bring justice upon the wicked, he says you get a front row seat to it. Verse 39, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them. Why? Because they fought really hard? No. It says because they took refuge in him. See, when Jesus calls us to meekness, he is not calling us to indifference. He's certainly not calling us to moral compromise. No, he's calling us to patience. It's not that we ignore when someone does us wrong. It's that we trust God to deal with it. We don't fight for ourselves. We trust the one who fights for us. That's why the scriptures say in Romans 12, 19, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. See, meekness is marked by a humility that I don't need to fight you because I've got one who fights for me. And so if you do me wrong, I don't need to strike back because I know the one who judges the living and the dead. The lion of Judah is coming. 
But unfortunately, meekness is not something that has often marked Christians. I mean, if you look around at much of the rhetoric that Christians have used in public and in politics and on social media, we haven't been known for meekness. We've often been known for aggression and bitterness, mean-spiritedness, and fear. At times, we've even allowed ourselves to be manipulated by pundits and politicians who like to stoke our fear for their own power and political gain. But again, Jesus says, that is not how the kingdom advances. The kingdom does not come through worldly powers. It comes through changed hearts, which leads us to number three. Meekness shows we know who we are and whose we are. We know who we are and whose we are. Listen to verse 30. It says, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. And listen to the reason David gives for this. Verse 31, it says, the law of his God is in his heart. So his steps do not slip. Remember what we've seen over the last several weeks that left to ourselves? We would never pursue the good life. We would never pursue God. Why? Because we are sinners by nature. So left to ourselves, we would never desire God. We would never want to obey God. So if we are going to pursue the good life, what do we need? We need a new heart. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel told us in the Old Testament that when Jesus came, he would remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. That God would write his law on our hearts so that we would begin to desire the very things that he desires. And here David says something similar. He says, those who pursue righteousness only do so because the law of God is in their heart. They have a relationship with God. God. Friends, this morning, if you have a relationship with God, it's not because you came to him. It's because he came to you. Remember, you are poor in spirit. You are spiritually bankrupt. There is nothing good in you. You've seen the depth of your sin. You've seen your brokenness. And as we saw last week, the only proper response is to mourn. And when you've been on that journey, when you've been through that process, that begins to change your perspective toward the people around you. Why? Because you realize, I was once just like you. Your wickedness might look different than theirs, but you were wicked nonetheless. You too once walked in darkness until you saw a great light. And you now have a relationship with God, not because you're better than them, but because he changed you. Man, you'd still be among the wicked, dead in your sin, if not by the power of the Holy Spirit did God cause you to be born again. And when you realize that, you realize That it's not worth your effort to condemn them. You no longer want to attack them. You don't want to retaliate against them. Because now your heart breaks for them. You begin to pray as Jesus prayed. Father, forgive them. 
they don't know what they're doing. They're spiritually blind. They're morally bankrupt. They're perishing. And I was just like them until I met you. See, I no longer view them as my enemy. I view them as someone who needs to meet Jesus. So I begin to restrain my anger and re instead respond with compassion. Instead of reacting in self-righteousness and meekness, I begin to respond in love. Because when I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And instead of reacting in hostility, I begin to respond in kindness. Because it was God's kindness, the scriptures say, that led me to repentance. And instead of retaliating, all of a sudden, I'm inclined to forgive. Why? Because I have been forgiven. See, when I begin to understand where I've been, and I grow in confidence of where I'm going, I can rest easy. I can be meek. Because my identity in Christ is firm. I know, I know who I am. And I know whose I am. Which leads to the last thing here. Our meekness shows the world the glory of our meek Savior. When we're meek, we show the world our meek Savior. Remember, we talked about this, but when Jesus ascended the mountain to preach, he was showing that he came to fulfill the law of Moses and to do what Moses and the law couldn't do. And we see that reflected right here. Because until Jesus came, Moses was known as the meekest man who ever lived. Numbers 12.3 says this, that he's the meekest man who ever lived. And the context of this is Moses is being falsely attacked by his own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, who not only questioned his leadership, but also lobbed racist attacks on his wife. And instead of retaliating in this moment, Moses instead puts his trust in the Lord, knowing that God will bring justice here. And the Lord does. He causes Miriam to break out in leprosy. Now, some of y'all, if that happened to your sister, you'd be like, that's right. Mm -hmm. I know what's up. That's right. You got it, right? Sweet justice, right? But that's not Moses' response. Instead, it says he's meek. He prays for his siblings. He asks God to have mercy and to remove the leprosy. And Miriam is cured in the process. And Moses is vindicated. I mean, clearly Moses is the master of meek. But as awesome as Moses was, y'all, he was still a sinner in need of God's grace, just like us. Because one day, when the people of Israel were thirsty, right, and y'all know how the Israelites were. They were just like us, right? They were a bunch of whiny heinies. When something wasn't going their way, they were going to complain about it, okay? And the people of Israel are thirsty. They want some water. And so God tells Moses, hey, go to this rock, speak to it, and I am going to bring water forth of it. But Moses, y'all, he might be meek, but he has his limits, right? He is sick of these people. Man, they have pushed him too far. He's had it up to here. He loses his temper. He's sick of them grumbling all the time. And he strikes the rock instead. And as a result, even though he had led these people through the wilderness for 40 years, God tells Moses he cannot enter into the promised land. And the final scene of Moses' life 
is he's watching from a distance on top of a mountain. He's watching these people that he's led through the wilderness, grumbling and complaining the whole time, right? And he's watching them enter the promised land while he dies alone on a mountaintop. See, as meek as Moses was, even he didn't inherit the land. Y'all, if Moses ain't getting in the land, right, what hope is there for us? How in the world can we obtain the earth? How are we going to get it? Clearly, if we're going to inherit the earth, it's not going to be because of anything good that we've done. It's all going to be because of what he's done. Now, if anyone, if anyone had a right to unleash his unbridled power upon the world, I mean, it was Jesus, right? I mean, all the way back to Adam and Eve, right? He would have had every right on the spot to just blow up the entire human race. And yet out of love, he restrained himself. More than that, he took on flesh, he walked among us, and yet scripture says his own people did not receive him. More than that, both Jew and Gentile seized him, beat him, spit on him, stripped him, crucified him. And as he hung naked on a cross, they even taunted him, saying, Oh, if you're the son of God, then why don't you come down off the cross, big boy? Says the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders mocked him, saying, Ho, 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 he saved others, can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. We'll let him come down from the cross, and then we'll believe. Oh, he trusts in God, they said. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. I mean, what? A bunch of punks. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but if I were Jesus at this point, I'd be like, okay, all right. Like, I mean, I've been pretty nice, y'all. I mean, Susie, remember that bum leg you had? Yeah? You enjoying your new one? Well, you're welcome, right? Oh, Bartimaeus, how those new eyeballs treating you, right? You were blind as a bat till I came along. Jairus, I brought your kid out of the grave. I mean, come on. And this is how Jerusalem repays me? Like, kaboom, right? And yet what? does Jesus do? (laughs) He takes it. He takes it. He takes all of it. Every insult, every lash, every blow, every nail, every thorn, every sin. Not because he was weak, but because he was meek. Indeed, as the prophet Isaiah said when he was foretelling Jesus' death on the cross, in Isaiah 53, 7, he says, Jesus was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet, listen, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus himself told Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? See, Jesus could have ended it all then and there. But instead, he took it all 
so that he could bring you peace, shalom with God. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us shalom. And with his wounds, we are healed. Friends, Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. And when he returns one day, we will see his power demonstrated in just judgment, setting things right in the world. So take courage. The wicked will not rule forever. Shalom will fill the earth again. The lion is coming. But first, he came as a lamb. And thank God he did. Because it is only by his meekness that we can be made right with God. Friends, I ask you this morning, what if through your meekness, someone might be drawn to God? Moses didn't inherit the land, but all who trust in Christ, becoming meek as he was meek, will not only inherit the land, but the entire world. The Lion of Judah made himself a lamb, laying down his life for yours. And now he is bidding you to lay yours down for him. Matthew 16, 24 says this, If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it and listen. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Fortunate are you if you are meek, for you will inherit the earth. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, forgive us for how often we run ahead of you we're eager to take matters in our own hands. God, when we're eager to take up our own life and live it, when you're calling us to come and die, that we might truly live. So Father, in this place this morning, in every heart, Would you break apart the pieces of stone that we've built up over the years? 
would you break through all our defenses and give us a heart of flesh that longs to see you, that longs to make you known, that longs for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord Jesus, meet us in this moment. come to the part of our service where we have the chance to respond to God's word. I just want to encourage you, maybe there's a relationship in your life that you think, man, I have not been very meek there. I need to reach out and reconcile. Maybe you can think of a situation at work. Maybe you can think of a situation at school. How can your meekness on full display point others to King Jesus. Maybe this morning you want to join the church. Man, we'd love for you to come and be a part of what God is doing here. Or maybe this morning for the first time in your life, you need to surrender your life to King Jesus. Whatever it is, let's not waste this moment. Let's stand, let's sing, let's respond. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfarechurch.org. Blessings.